But the thing is when you buy a brand new door, well, that paint is specifically made for that door and it's specifically applied in it using a, a specific process so that that door doesn't peel, doesn't scratch, you know, and it basically lasts forever. And when you get a brand new door, it won't peel. But you can't necessarily sell those products to just about anybody because there's a specific way that you need to apply those. And that's kind of where we reverse engineered that process to be able to apply that on site. And that was one of our first patents. Welcome to Franchise Empires, where aspiring entrepreneurs learn exactly what it takes to become a successful franchise owner from one location to 10 and beyond. I'm the Wolf of Franchises. Hey everyone, it's the Wolf. Today on the show, we have Carmelo Marsala, the founder of SprayNet. SprayNet is a unique franchise in the home improvement arena, offering painting services to homeowners but they've also developed their own patented painting process that allows them to provide a better, long-lasting paint job for homeowners that works on a variety of different materials. They've also custom-built a lot of their own software and have an in-house call center and marketing agency for franchisees. Overall, Carmelo talks us through how he became a painting and franchise entrepreneur and why building out custom tech and his own paint product made sense for his franchise. For anyone looking for a unique entrepreneurial perspective and how to think through strategic decisions, this is a great conversation to listen to. Hope you enjoy. The Wolf of Franchises is the CEO of Wolfpack Franchising, as well as a creator at Workweek Media. All opinions expressed by the Wolf and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Wolfpack Franchising or Workweek. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. The Wolf, Workweek, and Wolfpack franchising may maintain positions in the franchises discussed on this podcast. I kind of want to start, I mean, we were just chatting offline, right, about your soccer career. You know, when did the transition from, you know, was it directly from your soccer career into painting and spray net? Or was there anything in between before you got into this, you know, world of painting? Actually, yeah, I was literally playing soccer almost six, seven days a week up until like 18 years old. And then when I got into university, I was going to continue playing soccer in university. uh, But it was like, again, four or five, six times a week. And I got this opportunity to be a student painter at a university. And that's kind of how the transition happened. It was almost like a hard stop at that point. Wow. Okay. Did you like enjoy the painting or did you just see dollar signs of the business? You know, what was the main driver to really go head first into this? I think since the age of like, I don't know, I don't even remember 12, 13, 14 years old, I always want to start my own business, right? I was always doing little things here and there. And I always dreamed of starting my own business. I just didn't know where to start. So, you know, I got into like looking at stock trading and all of these things. And, and then when the opportunity presented itself in the university, I was like, well, this is cool. Like, I didn't really love painting. It wasn't necessarily my passion. I was like, I love the idea that I could start my own business, hire people, learn how to sell, learn how to do marketing. And I was like, yeah, I'm doing this for sure. Well, so could you take us through maybe those early years from this student painting gig to when did you officially, quote unquote, found SprayNet? Yeah, so I did student painting. Actually, my first year of student painting did really well. Learned basically everything from scratch, how to sell, how to knock on doors, get leads. And then two, three years into it, uh, well, actually coming out of my, my second year into my third year, I started realizing as we started growing this, that like the paints that we were using, now I started becoming familiar with the painting industry. Paints we were using are not necessarily conducive to giving you this long-term durability or factory finish. 
And when customers started asking me to paint their front door or their vinyl windows, I was like, I can't really do that properly. So I don't want to just do it for you. And that's kind of where the idea came from is like, well, how do we do this in a better way? Right. And that's kind of how it all started. Yeah. And so like, I wanted to get to that, but we might as well just talk about it now. Right. I, I know you guys have like the patented solution, right. For your paint. So with what you're saying, like, I mean, I have limited knowledge of the painting world, but I know Sherman Williams is a big paint store. <laughs> yeah. So I'm going to assume most professional, like, you know, a painting contracting business, right. You probably like, does everyone pretty much buy at Sherman Williams? And yeah, there's like two, three big players. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I show, show them the one of them. Okay. And, but the paint there, depending on the material that like you're painting on, it's not necessarily as durable or like what like cracks in it would show uh, in a short amount of time or like. The thing is latex paints, like our, what we call architectural coatings that Sherman Williams specializes in. They've got their place, right? They're easy to apply. A homeowner can apply them themselves. They'll generally look pretty good, but they're not necessarily made to have the same properties that you'd get from a brand new door, for example, right? So like the point is, it'll change the color of something, but it's easy to apply. So their, their whole model is let's make paint that anybody can use and we can manufacture in bulk. But the thing is when you buy a brand new door, well, that paint is specifically made for that door and it's specifically applied in it using a, a specific process so that that door doesn't peel, doesn't scratch, you know, and it basically lasts forever. And when you get a brand new door, it won't peel. But you can't necessarily sell those products to just about anybody because there's a specific way that you need to apply those. And that's kind of where we reverse engineered that process to be able to apply that on site. And that was one of our first patents. So when you developed the first patent, it was for, you said, a, like a, I guess, a brand new door of a specific material? Yeah. So, so the first coding that we developed actually was, yeah, front door. So that's actually how I really started is, is someone was like, I, I remember actually the day it's a customer said, hey, can you paint my front door? And this is like a million dollar house. And I'm like, Oh man, like I can brush this, but not only is it going to see the brush marks, but it's going to scratch at some point. So then I said, okay, well, how do they do it in a factory? I went to look at how they did it in a factory. And I tried to take those products and apply those on site. Problem with that is they dry too quickly and they end up cracking because they're made to be sprayed in a factory. So I figured, well, if we can get these products to be able to apply on site, then we'd be on to something. That's how we started tailoring the chemistry. I hired a chemist. I looked at how to formulate paint. And our first patent was actually on the process of weather adjusting these coatings to be able to apply them on site. Damn. That was our first thing. Nah. So we started front doors, garage doors, and vinyl windows. Holy crap. Okay. And how large of a like company are you at this point, right? Were you like a one for just your corporate business? How many territory size? What's kind of the status there? Yeah. So at that point we had grown, uh, we were doing... I mean, we were huge, but we were doing about $2 million in sales. So, you know, but this is actually relatively big because this is 2012. Uh, and we only had five months to do that. So we we had a lot of trucks on the road, but we realized that there was like a lot of limitations to these types of paints. And it also drastically decreased the size of our season too. So we couldn't paint in specific conditions and whatnot. There would always be reactions. So at that point, yeah, we were doing about $2 million in sales. Uh, and I mean, that for our home service business, that's still a, a pretty fantastic metric to hit. I think the more impressive part to me is, right, I mean, uh, developing a new innovative paint solution is it's a different business than just like the actual service of painting people's houses. Right. So like the fact that you were able to hire a chemist and work like you as a founder, like how did that go? Right. You're leading your prop. You still need to run the painting, like go paint customers' houses. But then like, are you just moonlighting and like getting updates from the chemist on like, how's the product development going? Well, so actually if I want to take a little quick step back, I mean, the yeah. reason why I was also frustrated was not only the limitations of the paint, but also when I would, whenever I would go do a quote, I was basically competing against the homeowner, their brother-in-law, or every other painting company. So I was basically selling time. 
So they said, I need to sell something that they can't do themselves or not everybody else can do. So I was actually very interested in creating something that had additional value for the customers. Because not only would that be better for our margins, but also it would be easier for me to sell this product, right? So we were actually initially saying, hey, we're the first people that can bring you that factory finish on site. But yeah, so I was... I actually was working with the chemist hand in hand. Like at that point, I had a production manager, I had a salesperson. We had grown the business to the point where I could work on the business, less in it. And this was actually very important for me because one of the things was, it's not just the durability that was important, but how you can apply it. And I was spraying the houses myself, right? So I knew like, hey, when we spray this, it can't sag this way. It's got to cover this way. I got to be able to spray it with no overspray. This way. So that was actually almost equally as important than the final fill properties, if not more important. Because if, if our guys couldn't apply it properly, didn't matter how good the paint was, that was as important, right? So I was yeah. like working almost hand in hand, almost full time with our campus. Incredible. And so to these paints, and like, I guess to you guys as now a franchise, right? It's Brandon, I mean, you only, or do you guys specialize, right? And like, the front doors, the garage doors, et cetera? Or are you you're still doing the whole house? And then plus, hey, like for these other areas, like we actually have, the premium best product that will actually be long lasting for, you know, let's say the front door. Yeah. yeah. So we started with front doors, garage doors, windows. Now we do aluminum siding. We actually have a patented process on how we do vinyl siding. We stain brick and we actually just launched a new coating that took us four years to make. It's a granulated roof coating. So we've basically liquefied a roof. We've taken those same granules that you get in the factory and we're able to spray them on a roof. So not only does it prolong its life, but allows it to change its color and it doesn't look repainted because all you see is the granule. So it literally looks like a brand new roof. Holy crap. And this patent process, man, like what, what's that been like? Uh, and I guess, the, so you, I know you're based in Montreal, but this is applied to North, like all of North America or is it just Canada, just the US? Um, and is it the product or the actual process of like actually getting it on a roof as well? Or That's a great question. So yeah, we actually have two yeah. Canadian patents and three American patents. We don't patent our chemistry. The reason for that is it's ever evolving, right? We're always optimizing it, but especially sure. we don't want to divulge the formulas. So what we've done is we've actually patented the process. So one of the processes is our ability to be able to weather adjust the coatings on site, because that's what allows us to give that factory durable finish every time. And the second one actually is on our ability to reinforce vinyl so that we can paint it in darker colors. Vinyl has a heat distortion rate of about 160 Fahrenheit. And if there's sun on it, especially with darker colors that absorb UV light, obviously, you know, black colors absorb light and heat up, it'll actually distort the vinyl. So we actually fortify the vinyl with a base coat that we've actually created to be able to spray it in darker colors. So how did you like fully, I mean, right, you, you weren't a chemist by trade. Did you just learn from the first one you hired? And like, do you still have like a, that, you know, for your corporate staff, like, do you have just a chemistry department? Like what's the ops look like? Well, what's this journey been like for you to like, I mean, clearly, you know a lot more about paint than the average Joe. So, <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, at this like, point, we'll, we'll, I hope so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess we can back up here with College Pro. When I was doing student painting, I was actually already starting to learn about paint because I was like, well, there's got to be better ways to apply this. And of course, everybody thinks about spray application, but you can also buy what's called flow modifiers. You can use foam rollers. So literally, I did all the research in the world to try to make these paints do better. The problem was I couldn't get the right gloss, couldn't get the right hardness couldn't get all the right properties. So I realized, well, I have to make these products ourselves because nobody's going to make these custom for us. So I started looking at how to formulate paint, took a course on that, realized that, hey, this is actually possible. Let me go find a chemist. And yeah, now we have an R&D department uh, with full-time chemists on it. Yeah. <laughs> that is super cool, man. So, I mean, as you're developing these products, I imagine like you have to test them, right? So to speak, I'm sure you did like internal testing, but 
you know, sometimes you never really know how it's going to look until you have a live customer. So, you know, was there any uh, particular, like, let's call it like battle scars from the early days where maybe just a product didn't work the way you thought, and, like you had to sacrifice the door from a homeowner to figure that out? So for sure. And the thing is what I guess all of you don't know about paint is you can get these final, like, let's say I want hardness and a gloss and all that. I can get those. I can replicate those in a lab and, and know that it's going to last. The challenge is how do I apply that on site? Because it's easy to apply that in a factory. So the first door that we ever sprayed, actually, we sprayed the whole thing. We're like, wow, it looks great. Literally like 10 minutes later, it all cracked. We're like, all right, cool. Let's set it and start over back to the drawing board. <laughs> so luckily yeah. it was my mom's house. Uh, but, <laughs> but yeah, so I actually have tested everything on my mom's house. <laughs> so we stained her brick. She was our first ever brick stain customer. We did our aluminum <laughs> siding. So a lot of field tests happens on the houses of people that we know. And then, of course, we iterate the product. So yeah, our franchisees continues to give us feedback. Like, I'll give you an example. There's one product in one specific color that, you know, didn't apply well when it was too humid because it was sag. So we literally just changed the sag resistance of that specific color of that specific product. So we're always optimizing the products now based on feedback. Luckily, now we have a lot more feedback because we have all our franchisees. And so I imagine, right, like the benefit for the franchisee is that you guys only sell these products through your franchisee network, right? You're not like, are you, or are you wholesale? I mean, yeah, that's where my mind's gone. I'm like, oh, you can maybe wholesale this to like other paint suppliers. But obviously if it stays in the franchise, that's a pretty big value add, I would imagine for the franchisees to have that. Well, yeah, it's our competitive advantage. And the thing is like, people say, well, why doesn't Sherwin-Williams do this? Because we're not in the business of selling paint. We're in the business of selling value to the homeowner, right? Our vision is to be the most cost-effective way to modernize a property. So we wouldn't be able necessarily to even sell these products because there's a specific way you need to apply them that's unconventional, right? So yeah. it has to come with the training. It has to come with the whole franchise model. That's super interesting. Yeah. If you wanted to, you'd almost like you were going that direction. You have to like basically be your own supply house, but then you need like a whole staff at every store to teach every other contractor how to do it. So it makes right. sense now that you went the franchise route. Yeah, we go from formulation to application. And you yeah. have to kind of have that whole circle. Otherwise it doesn't work. Yep. No, for sure. At what point were you like, all right, you know, we've got four or five or six, maybe territories or, you know, you've got a large corporate business of your own in the Montreal area. When did you think to start franchising it? Well, actually it was, I, I remember, and I like to tell the story because I was actually on a ladder and I was spraying a house, phone to my ear because I was basically the production manager, salesperson. Uh, there's a call center, the marketing person, and the phone fell off my ear and I took my spray gun and threw it down. And I said, enough is enough. I need to change the way I do business here. That off season, because we used to have off seasons, we were a seasonal business before we only used exteriors. So we basically worked five months. That off season, I started looking into franchising because I used to be a franchisee of College Pro. So I said, well, that's a model that probably works, right? So I read the E-Myth Revisited by Michael Gerber, started understanding how franchising works. And the year after we literally launched two franchisees. One, two hours west of here, one, two hours east of here. And with basically little, like almost no training, no onboarding, very limited, they had really, really good success. So I said, hey, yeah, I think we're on to something here with a franchise model. Obviously today, right, you have kind of franchisees in North America and, or sorry, between Canada and the United States. I don't think I've actually ever had a franchisor that kind of has, I mean, at least that started in Canada and now is kind of in right. multiple countries here in North America. So from the get-go, after those first two franchisees, did you say, hey, like, let's go to the United States now? Or did you wait and build out more of a, like, knock off some of the Canadian markets before saying, all right, let's expand this to the rest of, you know, the continent? 
Yeah, we've only actually started in the United States about two years ago now. Uh, we actually okay. rolled out the entire country in Canada before. We really want to optimize, refine our processes, be ready for the U.S. Because U.S. bigger, right? You know this, right? So we'll have to make sure we were ready for it. Although we were, quote unquote, emerging in the U.S., we have been franchising for almost seven years, right? So we kind of optimized everything to make sure that we were ready to go in the U.S. Yeah, have you noticed, you know, I actually am not super, super familiar with the Canadian market from a franchise perspective. I do, you know, for brands I used to work with, we went through like the application process for registering the Canadian FDD. But, you know, are there any, uh, you know, for maybe the franchise industry folks that listen to this and uh, like to be nerds about it like I do, you know, are there any uh, big like regulatory differences or anything from a process perspective that's like kind of a significant change from Canada to the United States? I would say it's actually way more regulated. Well, I would say it is way more regulated in the United States than it is in Canada. Okay. For the reason that there's a lot more franchises and franchisors in the United States. There's very little in Canada. So every province, just like every state has different laws. But like in the US, you still have your FDD, you still have your item 19, you still have all of your basic structure that's the same. Whereas in Canada, not really. You don't have to update it every year. It's just way less regulated just because there's way less franchisors here. It's not a thing really. Got it. Now that makes sense. And it's obviously the United States, probably the biggest market for franchises in the world. So big time. And I know, you know, in the US here, you partnered with Fastlane, which uh, franchise Fastlane is. So I have a few questions about kind of that decision-making process for you as a CEO. But before we get into that, what would you say was this, the process of like learning about franchising, both in the US and Canada, right? Like oftentimes franchisors and founders will say that, it's like starting a second business, right? Did you feel that way? Like that there was a steep learning curve and like, it's like, okay, like I've got this painting business, but like for the franchising of the painting business, it's like literally just a whole different ball game. And, you know, did it take a ton of your time and energy early on or, or what was that like in you know, the 2014-ish timeframe when you started to franchise? It was absolutely a different business and I didn't realize it would be, right? I didn't have any franchise advisors or mentors at that point. So what we did is when we got these new franchisees, we just took some guys from our corporate team who were, you know, knew how to do the job and send them to train the franchisees. That didn't necessarily work because, you know, you're taking these blue collar guys with these white collar guys with, you know, middle management, et cetera. And like, they're not even speaking the same language. So it was like, wow, we need to really refine this so that we can onboard just about anybody. And, you know, like seven, eight years later now, you know, my role, I focus more on the franchising side, less on the operation side of, of running our actual corporate territories. But yeah, they are two entirely separate businesses, like completely. I mean, we can go deeper into that, but like nothing's the same. Like uh, you now become a training organization of how to teach people how to run a business, not even just a painting business, but a business in and of itself. And then we have our additional layer of how to use our products, how to use our software. Now our role is really how do we build a scalable business model for our franchisees where they can get on the ground running as quick as possible and be as profitable as possible, as quick as possible, right? With the scale that we have. So us particularly, we, we're a manufacturer, we're a distributor, we're the marketing agency for the franchisee. We're even a software business because we actually built our software from scratch to allow our franchisees to scale their business. So it's totally different, totally different. Well, that's good to hear. I mean, I think the my point always asking that question is just, you know, if there's new franchisors or people listening to this, think about, you know, starting or franchising their business, right? For that to real, like not to dissuade them, but just I, there seems to be at times, depending on, you know, a founder or a group, there could be like a false perception that franchising is maybe 
a get rich quick scheme, honestly. Some people have well, that view and I think it's yeah. really anything but. So, yeah. Really not. And I like that you said that because people come up to me all the time and be like, hey, you franchised your business. You know, can you help me out? Like, let me know. And I'm like, look, I'm really not trying to dissuade you here, but I'm just letting you know that you're not going to make any money franchising until you've got like a good amount of scale. So like, you know, yeah. you need the capital to be able to fund that growth. So like what we did is we, we obviously were making money for our corporate territories, but all of that was reinvested to become a franchisor, right? People think, oh, I'm going to add franchisees. I'm just going to make money on top of that. No, not at all. It's not how it works. <laughs> It definitely varies by brand. And I don't even want to throw out like just an average because I, I just think that it varies by brand and industry, right? But, but basically like I, I think anywhere like the range to be conservative is like probably 25 or 30 to 100 units open and operating before a franchise or really hits cash flow, like royalty self-sufficiency, meaning like the royalties are actually paying for and, and you're able to profit then off of after including all your coaches and training team and support team for all the franchisees. Cause I, I think that's something people don't factor in. It's like, they just do the math with the franchise fees. And if they could sell it and they don't factor in that you have to usually hire people to get those franchisees in the door, which takes money from the franchise fees. And also ideally you want to reinvest some of it into the franchisees. But then as you grow, you need the support staff. So like, it's not like the royalties are just going straight into someone's bank account from day one. And what I tell people yeah. too is like, one of the things that we miscalculated too is like at one point we had 25 brand new franchisees and you don't realize that you'll actually end up losing money on new franchisees in their first year until probably like 12 to 18 months in because they need a tremendous amount of support. And their first year, they're not doing that much in sales or revenue, right? Compared to year two or year three. So it's kind of like in year three, they're doing way more in revenue, but you need to support them less. So that's when you actually start making some money. No, a hundred percent, man. There's definitely like kind of got to invest right in, in the business, in their businesses before you see the return. Something that I'm curious about. So you said you developed your own software. You know, I know like um, House Call Pro and Jobber in, in North America are pretty big for like variety of home services industries. So did you guys basically build out your own custom version? Not like of that, but basically you don't have a need for a House Call Pro or a Jobber because SprayNet has their own software. Well, exactly. And I mean, it's, it's somewhat similar because all, you know, all home services kind of follow that same workflow. The reason why we have to create our own is, well, A, the way that we quote is very, very particular. It's not like any other painting company. And also some of our patents are embedded into our software. So for example, our applicators can put in the weather conditions that tells them what chemistry to use to be able to actually adjust the paint on site. So like there's a lot of particularities to our software that you wouldn't be able to get from something off the shelf. Similar to we can't get off-the-shelf paint products, we couldn't get a, an off-the-shelf software to work, so we had to build basically build our own. I completely see the value in that. You know, this is something yeah. I was actually, so with Crockett, right, our financial data management tool for franchisors, we had a client say we, they were demoing it and they ultimately are building their own. And I actually, for, let's I don't know, like eight out of 10 times, I did genuinely don't think it makes sense for a franchisor to build their own technology. Cause like, like you said it before, right? Once you're franchising, you're in the training business that go like yeah. you're running a corporate territory. Your job is to train new franchisees and transfer your knowledge to them so that they can run their business. Ideally, uh, you know, without needing your help at all, but right. that's like the perfect case scenario. And there's this really good quote by Jeff Bezos about kind of this kind of idea that a lot of companies get into, which is Doing things that don't actually help their core business. And that I, he was referencing like breweries or something in like the 1800s in Germany when like electricity became a thing. And like a lot of breweries were obsessed with like bringing electricity to 
like allow the breweries to run on electricity. And every brewery that did that ended up going out of business because becoming like an electrical engineer was not actually making their beer any better. Uh, And there was one brewery that became the powerhouse. They just let like they had some hydro powered system that was already in place and they just left it and they became the dominant brewery for a while because like they were focusing on things. The other ones were focusing on things that didn't make better beer, which is their business. So like that's always my kind of guidance for franchisors is like, which in your case, right? Like that literally makes your business better because it's telling them what to apply to the house and it's specific to the product that you have. So, and we don't reinvent the wheel where we don't need to, right? So like, for example, like, you know, punching and punching out, there's tons of great softwares that allow us to do that. We literally just use an API and embed that into our software. We're not going to build that from scratch. We don't need to, right? Yep. There's softwares that do that properly. We just literally build the stuff from scratch and the framework because that's what we needed to do. That's super fascinating. And yeah, that's also the beauty of it today, right? With There's so many amazing tech companies out there that there's a lot of kind of just solutions that uh, you can embed uh, with minimal development work. So yeah, we always explore, do we buy or do we build? And, you know, you said eight times out of 10, it makes sense to buy. I would argue even more than that, nine times. Like there's service yeah. site, there's house call pro, there's jobber. There's a whole bunch of good ones. Like they work for most franchisors. The reason why it didn't work for us is I explained it specifically, but I mean, I wish we could have just bought one. <laughs> it just didn't fit our model, right? Yeah, yeah. But hey, I mean, in, in the long run, I think that would, uh, you know, the, it definitely yeah. gives more value to your company. So that's yeah. really cool to see. Um and you also said, so you, you do a lot of the marketing on behalf of your franchisees as far as like getting them like, I don't know, maybe it's like uh, quotes booked or something or like walkthroughs and all that. Yeah. So we basically take care of their digital marketing. We teach them how to do all the traditional guerrilla stuff. All the digital marketing it, it happens in-house. We, we have some third-party suppliers that we use too. We do all the creatives. We manage the vendors. We make sure the ads are performing. And then once those calls are booked, our call center actually schedules them on behalf of our franchisees. So we've actually also built a module for our call center where, you know, based on drive times through the Google API, we're able to schedule these quotes where it makes sense for the franchisees. So literally they got to show up to do the quote, <laughs> uh, sign the job, which we show them how to do, and then put it into our system to produce it. That's pretty robust. So you're telling me if, I, if I'm a spreading up franchisee and a uh, unique scenario for me today, I'm in Miami. So, uh, I'm operating in Miami, I just wake up and you guys have already booked all the jobs for me and through the logistics portion of your software, tell me the best route to get to all those jobs and or quotes for the day. So the quotes, yeah. So we don't book the, we, we have a jobs calendar where the franchisees book their own jobs, but okay. we book the quotes. Yeah. So all the quotes that come into our call center are booked based on drive time and availability. That's pretty fantastic. Yeah. The goal is to get franchisees to focus working in their business managing their team, leading their team, building their team and selling jobs. We want to take all the back end away from this. We can really focus on delivering like an amazing service to customers, get those Google reviews, get more team members to scale their business. So we really try to get everything in the back end that's redundant. So you really just have that kind of model dialed in, which is, which is awesome to see. Amazing. I mean, yeah, I think that's a big aspect, right? For franchisees to know that you're supporting heavily, it sounds like on the lead generation side. Because that's, I mean, for a home services business, that's kind of the name of the game, right? Is, is like being yep. as visible online as possible because there's no brick and mortar storefront for you guys. Exactly. And of course, like most franchisors, we've got a brand fund, but we do, you know, the, the national campaigns, whether it be on YouTube, we do public relations campaigns, you know, next door campaigns. There's a lot of stuff that we do on a brand level too. We, we try to rebuild out our website, 
SEO, CRO, all of that stuff that, you know, when I was running the business, I was like, wow, I wish I didn't have to do all of this other stuff so I could actually run the business. Well, as a franchisee, the beauty is you don't have to do that stuff, right? You don't have to be on the ladder with the phone to your ear, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, to a certain extent, it's still tough, but not, you know, you don't have to do all the back end stuff at least. <laughs> so given that, like kind of this franchise model where it sounds like you do take a really big portion of the, like you said, that, that back office, those back office admin tasks off their plate. Have you been able to see like franchisees scale to multiple territories? And if so, like, is there a kind of a poster example almost, right? Where, um, you know, I've talked about this before my podcast, you know, I've had brick and mortar franchisees on this show who own as much as 20, like I had Greg Flynn, this guy who started the Applebee's and now he owns like almost 3000 franchise locations, all brick and mortar. Well, and then we've also, I think, you know, 10, yeah, it's incredible. Also I've had like, you know, 10 unit owners or you know, we had uh, Jamie Weeks, a guy who owns 150 plus Orange Theories and like 60 Dogtopias. But I've yet to have a franchisee of a non-brick and mortar brand who owns like, you know, 80 territories. And I haven't cracked the code on why I, something within me just thinks it's inherently harder to scale with the territory model. Anyway, I'm just curious, you know, what you've seen within your franchisees. You you own six corporate territories yourself. So have you seen a franchisee like beat that mark yet? Or I love that question because a mentor of mine once told me, the only time you're actually successful as a franchisor is when your first franchisee beats you. And <laughs> we're almost there. We're, we're, we're yeah. very close. We're not there yet. Uh, but I think next year is going to happen. And the thing is, you're right. It's much harder to scale. And that's why we're building this software from scratch is we want to be able to allow our franchisees to scale. And honestly, I don't think you could do without the software. Like at that point, we're using Excel spreadsheets. One of the main reasons we actually started building software is because our salespeople were saying, no, our production guys were saying, we can't read the handwriting of the sales guys, right? So it's too confusing. So we started to digitize everything. And as we start to build this software into a more robust software, that's when we'll see franchisees being able to scale. So our goal in the next three years is to allow franchisees to scale past their immediate vicinity. So right now we've got a franchisee who's, who's got a lot of territory within a three hour drive. But we haven't seen anybody be able to run a franchise remotely or across the country. So we're actually looking to pilot that corporately this year to be able to kind of iron out the kinks so that eventually we can have franchisees with multiple territories, kind of like the same way that a brick and mortar restaurant can do that. That would be awesome to kind of watch that from the sidelines. There's a lot of intricacies, mainly around getting the field techs and team leads, the visibility in the business on their metrics and allowing for dynamic real-time performance management and compensation. That's the big piece that we're missing right now. And we're, we're like 50% there. But once we can have it where each team lead is kind of running almost his own little business within the business, that's when we'll be able to start scaling this even further. I mean, that's super robust software and insights that you're going to have from that. And that's, I mean, just, yeah, having real-time access to data is, of course, like, well, partially in a different sense, what we're doing with Crockett, but it really kind of unlocks so many possibilities, especially in the operational realm. And, you know, Crumble Cookies is like a famous example. They, unique scenario in which one of the co-founders had a heavy technology background. So he was able to build a lot of things himself and knew how to vet a technical hire very easily. You know, they brought in like a senior engineer from Facebook uh, as their first corporate hire. But yeah, they built from start to finish, uh, end-to-end software that all their franchisees use that give them not only the real-time like financial access, but I mean, they literally know like the cook time for cookies in the oven and they can tell before a franchisee even knows if a franchisee is making a mistake operationally, it's going to impact the 
financials. Um, well, so like to me, yeah. that's like what everyone should strive for. I don't, I mean, most, like I would say 98% of brands don't have that level of insights because like that's incredible, but it's something right. to strive, right? Well, that's exactly it. And I love what you said is proactive data, right? So we're trying to look at, can we then figure out proactively if something is going to go wrong and how do we proactively train these people or push different training to them? Like there's so many different points in the workflow where we can actually help and automate certain things. Like we actually just trained a chat GPT on all of our internal documents nice. so that now they can literally just text chat GPT and it will literally give them the answer based on all of our general documents. So if we can start proactively pushing that information out to them at the right time, well, then you even take care of training, right? Uh, so you start being able to scale much, much quicker. That's something too with chat GPT that's just fascinating. And I don't think enough people realize it, that like, yeah, you, you can train for train it for your specific use case. So I love that aspect of it. And we, we actually did that with Crockett. We have a chart of account matching system to standardize, you know, a franchisee's books if they have a different income statement than what the franchisor wants. That process through ChatGPT, it can like auto map a lot of the account names to just make it quicker. Right. Yeah. So it's super fascinating technology. So it's just cool to hear that you're using that. You know, moving to your North American expansion, it sounds like in Canada, you guys franchised largely on your own. What was the thought process to, for North America to work with a franchise sales organization, which, you know, most people I think who listen to this podcast are familiar with what that is at this point. Yeah. What was that like for you to decide, okay, let's work with franchise Fastlane, where maybe they take a share, right, uh, of some of the economics for franchises that end up getting awarded, but it's a give and a take, you know, is what I say, where yes, you quote unquote, lose out on some of the economics, but you're trading that typically for speed of growth. That's right. to me when it makes sense. And I used to work for a franchise sales org. So like know that world very well. It doesn't make sense for every brand, but yeah. What, what was your mental process for saying like, this makes sense for my franchise? Well, you, you spoke about royalty self-sufficiency earlier on, right? And like we were yeah. at the point where now we had all these talented franchise business coaches because, you know, in Canada, we had to wrap them up to be able to add on all these new franchisees. But as our franchisees started to mature, you know, three, year four, year five, well, these coaches didn't have much to do anymore, right? Like, so <laughs> now we had all these fixed costs. Yeah, I mean, they still checked in with the franchisees, obviously, but it's not as intensive as in the first two years. So we said, hey, we need more franchisees. We need them quick, right? Like we need, we need to leverage these fixed costs. We need to leverage, you know, all of our FBCs, our franchise business coaches to make sure that they're actually adding value to the business. So it didn't matter for us to make any money on the franchise fee. We just wanted more franchisees so that we could onboard them because in the future, that would make sense for us. So we figured, well, what's the fastest way to do so? Well, these franchise sales organizations already have all the existing relationships in place. May as well leverage that, right? And that, that was kind of our thought process behind it. And I mean, I think it's kind of right line with what I said. And what, you know, I, I think that's typically the calculus, you know, as I mentioned earlier, right? Just that it makes sense, you know, to trade kind of some of those economics for the speed if you're able to. Yeah. So I, I think, yeah. no, I don't know if enough franchisors consider that aspect that, you know, really every day in America, there's about 3,000 to 3,500 active franchises. That's our estimation from Crockett, where I think the commonly cited quote is 4,000. I don't think there actually is 4,000 active franchises. We have data to back that up, but regardless, not really the point. The point is just that <laughs> they're all going after franchisees and, you know, home services is a pretty big category. And a lot of franchise buyers, they're not necessarily like, you know, throw me around. There are some that are like, I want a fast casual restaurant, or I want, yes. you know, a boutique fitness franchise. But there are others who are, you know, 
Maybe just they're a little bit industry agnostic. Maybe they'll say, I want a home services franchise, but you know, I don't care if it's gutter cleaning or painting or whatever. I just want to trust the franchisor and, and have a dialed in model and an available territory, right? Right. So any day that you're not getting in front of those people, I mean, someone else is getting in front of them and potentially they're signing on and that's a, that's a missed opportunity for all the other franchises. Right. So like it is a competitive market. And so speed really does matter if you're a franchise. I think the key for you is that from what I've learned is that you guys were had a lot of systems and processes already figured out from your work in Canada. And until a brand is at that point, you know, maybe going fast could actually hurt them because they're just going to have a bunch of unhappy franchisees. And then you you not only lose momentum, you just go backwards and you maybe develop a reputation that's that's bad. And then it could honestly be a death sentence depending on the brand. So yeah. Yeah. No, what I was going to say too is like, we were fortunate enough to have already 30 franchisees. So we had some, you know, some recruit revenue coming yeah. in from royalties where we could afford to not necessarily make money on the franchise fee, right? Whereas most yep. franchisors need that money to fund their growth. Uh, so we were in a position where it made sense for us to be able to do it. Yeah, that's exactly it. So, I mean, for anyone listening to this, I think the the summary is if you're capitalized enough where you can afford to work with an FSO, and if you also just have the systems in place where you can onboard new franchisees in mass, because, you know, yep. I know, you know, a company like Fastlane, you know, they, they can award you a bunch of new franchisees in a given year. You know, you just have to be yeah. ready for that growth if you're going to do that. So awesome, man. Well, you know, just kind of in wrapping up here, I mean, is there any uh, any target you have set for North America globally, you know, that you guys are trying to hit with, with SprayNet over the next, whatever your timeline is, three, five, seven, ten 10 years? Yeah. In the next three years, we want to get to 120 franchisees. So we're a bit more than halfway there. And then the goal for that is in five years to be a $100 million business. So in that regard, we're about a third of the way there. So I think it's a realistic plan. It's just yep. now we basically just have to onboard new franchisees and we have the capacity to onboard 25 to 30 a year at this point. So that's basically just keep doing that until we get to that number. Fantastic. Well, look, I mean, it sounds like you guys have a lot of differentiators that not even just amongst painting franchises, but, you know, oh, I'm sure uh, I doubt a lot of, and this isn't to throw shade at the independent businesses, but, you know, the things you're doing with your own software, your own patented processes for paints and the marketing agency and the call center for franchisees to drive leads. I mean, that's uh, it's tough for other businesses to compete with all that. So yeah, really impressive what you build, man. I appreciate it, man. I think like if I had to conclude of like, you know, what was different or whatnot, it's like, I said at the beginning, I didn't want to sell time. So I didn't want to be in the home services space. I wanted to be in the home improvement space and do something that not everybody else could do. So as a result, we don't have much direct competition. We basically have a whole bunch of indirect competitors, which allows us to get like a, a super high gross margin, right? And that works for our franchisees. And it works for our customers because they also get all the convenience and affordability of conventional painting with all the benefits of replacement. So I guess like we, that ties into our mission of just creating value. And for me as an entrepreneur, that's that's kind of what I wanted to do. So I'm happy that our business is able to provide value for customers and our franchisees. So I think that sums up who we are and what we do, I think. Yeah, no, I love it. Have you read just the way you described that, what you do, like home improvement versus home services? Did, did you read uh, Blue Ocean Strategy? I have not. It's actually on my list. No, okay. I'm not the first person to cool. read Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah, yeah. It's just... Uh, I mean, the, yeah, again, the way you describe it, that's the, kind of the whole premise of the book is you want to be in a blue ocean, aka a market that doesn't have competitors. Most businesses are in a red market where, you know, you have like for like competitors, but 
Um, if you do something different with your business, it actually can just open up a whole new world uh, of possibilities. So right. Uh, anyway, for anyone listening, good good book to read if you're starting a business uh, or want to start a business at some point. But yeah, look, Carl, it's been a lot of fun, man. Where can folks who are interested in SprayNet, interested in following you, uh, you know, what are the best places online to do that? Pretty active on LinkedIn. So we have SprayNet on LinkedIn, myself on LinkedIn, SprayNetFragize.com, SprayNet.com. You can get all the information you need from those sources for sure. All right, folks, we'll have the LinkedIn accounts as well as the franchise website in the show notes. And you guys can get in touch with Carmelo or uh, get in touch with his team. That's Brainnet if you're interested in, in an awesome painting franchise. So, Carmelo, thanks again, man. It was super fun to talk. And, uh, you know, we, we'll uh, catch up soon. Thanks, man. Appreciate you having me. Thanks for listening to Franchise Empires. We're coming to you soon with actionable insights to take the next step on your franchise journey. So make sure to subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen.